Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? Maybe a tad sleepy. Losing one hour of sleep. It's raining. I know my challenges. I'm ready. I'm prepared. All right. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We left off at verse 11 last week, and we're going to look at just two verses this morning, verses 12 and 13, which are absolutely essential for the Christian life. I, as Tyler was praying for us earlier, I resonated so much with his prayer, this, this earnestness that, that we would be people in whom the gospel isn't just believed, but it's, it sinks into every part of our life and it, and it informs the way we live. The text this morning is one of those texts that doesn't necessarily make it on coffee cups or t-shirts, but it is, it is as I said, essential for, for the Christian life. So in just a moment, I'm going to read Romans 8, verses 12 through 13. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to use one of the ones that you can find in front of you and keep that. If you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. Let me mention as, as, as we're finding that before we pray that next week I will be out of town. Um, I am going to be preaching at uh, a dear friend of mine's church in Atlanta, Mount Vernon Baptist Church. I have a, a dear brother friend in ministry, uh, Aaron Minikoff, who has been an, a real encouragement to me and, and a, in a sense a mentor to me. And um, he's asked me to come preach at his church just this next Sunday, just a, a standalone sermon. And so um, Robert will be preaching next week, and then the following week I'll be back, and we'll, we'll pick back up in Romans, starting with verse 14. Um, but let me, let me uh, read verses 12 and 13, and then, and then let's pray. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Well, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, as we come to this text, this is, this is such a critical part of, of Romans chapter 8. It's such a such an important truth. Lord, the distractions are, are many. We recognize that we're, we're, we're fidgety people. Some of us are distracted by the rain, by the lack of sleep, maybe by our phones, by a thousand other things that are more legitimate. We're distracted people. And we, we need to see this truth this morning. I need, I need this truth in my life. My brothers and sisters need to see and behold this truth this morning. There are unbelievers that are in this room that, that need to feel the weight of this truth. They need to be woken up by your sovereign grace out of their stupor. We just confess that we are completely dependent people, so... Lord, open our eyes to see beautiful things from your word. And as we prayed earlier, may none of us leave this room unchanged, unchallenged by your word. 
may, may your people be more like Jesus. May we be more humble. May we be more, vigor in our, more vigorous in our fight against sin. And may any unbelievers pass from death to life this morning as a result of our gathering in your grace. Do your work in your people. And for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So up to this point, Paul, really as I was thinking about this this week, for the past eight and a half chapters of Romans 8, Paul has really been, for the most part, just explaining the truth of the gospel. He has been establishing the indicative, the truth, whether or not we are acting on it or not, he is explaining the good news of the gospel, the situation of mankind, and what God has done in response to our situation, that we are dead in our sins, there's nothing mankind can do to save himself, but God, who is rich in mercy, has put Jesus forward, God the Father puts God the Son forward to be the sacrifice for our sins, and then he makes us alive when he saves a person, he gives them new life, by his spirit, he comes into them, he regenerates them, he indwells them, and when he indwells a person and makes them alive, he gives them a new heart, and one of the things that that new heart possesses is the gift of saving faith, whereby a newly made alive person can behold Jesus and put their trust in what Jesus has done on the cross in his perfect life and sacrificial death and victorious resurrection. They can put their hope and trust in what Christ has done to commend them, to make them right before a holy God whom we will all stand before someday. And that's basically a summary of what Romans has been up to this point. It's really just been an explanation of that. And surprisingly, there's been very little of any command there's been no exhortation. There's been no imperative of this is how you should live in light of the gospel until we get to verse 12. And this is what Paul says in verses 12 and 13. He's exhorting us to now do something in light of this gospel that we have been hearing about and hearing it explained so clearly by Paul. So I, I want us to frame our, our thought of this text, our, our work through these two verses by looking really at four questions. The first three are I want to just handle very quickly, and then we're going to settle down on the, the fourth question. The first question is this. <clears throat> what does it mean that we are debtors? That's what Paul says there in, in the beginning of verse 12. He says, so then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. And then he kind of cuts off his thought there. He doesn't then say that we're debtors to the Spirit, but that's clearly what he's implying there. He's saying that we are debtors. We are, if you have an NASB, a, North, uh, a New American Standard Bible, or an NIV, it, it says, it interprets that, and I think this is a helpful way of putting it, we are under obligation. So what does this mean? It does not mean that we in any way pay God back for our sins. So in other words, if, I, if you loaned me some money, in a sense I would be your debtor, and I would want to pay you back that money. But that's not the, the sense of this word here as Paul is using it. We can never pay God back for our salvation. 
In fact, in Romans 11, it says, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? That's a rhetorical question that Paul is asking at the end of Romans 11 that implies no one. You can't, it's not like you were in a bad place God forwarded you some cash in the form of Jesus, and now the rest of the Christian life is you making it up. That's ridiculous. No, no, we can't do that. That's not the Christian life. We're not debtors in that sense. What this means is that we now have been transferred from the dead life of the flesh, and we have been purchased, redeemed. We've been owned by God for his glory. And now, as we were obligated, because our hearts were dead in sin to follow our old master, the flesh, we are now obligated, we are now servants of a new master, which is God. That's, that's what this, this idea of the fact that we are debtors, and this, this realizing this alone, I think, is, is for many of us, and should be, certainly, paradigm shifting. It, it means that the Christian life is not just the acceptance of some doctrines, it's not just a, a cultural ethic. It is, it is to be owned by, to be owned by God. This runs counter to the, the easy believism of mere cultural Christianity or nominal Christianity. You, know, you understand, I hope, what I mean when I say nominal Christianity. Christianity in name only. People that will confess that they believe a certain set of truths about the Bible consider themselves in right standing with God, but in actuality that, that message that they believe has not actually taken root in their life. They are not owned by God. There's no renewal. There's no regeneration. There's no new heart. There's just a kind of easy believism. And that is sadly the case for many people in American Christianity. And Paul here is saying just by this word debtors, that, that, that is absolutely not an option for the Christian. We are, we are obligated to live for our new master. The second question then is, is, what does it mean to live according to the flesh? So if we're debtors to the Spirit, he says that we're not debtors any longer to the flesh to live according to the flesh. And remember that we talked about this in the recent weeks, that, that Paul is contrasting all of life He's really contrasting all of humanity as really being in one or two camps. Those that are still dead in their sins, living according to the flesh, and those that have been made alive by God, regenerated by His Holy Spirit, and are now in the Spirit, living according to the new way of the Spirit. So there is either dead people or alive people. That, that's, that's the only two possibilities for any human. And Paul is, is saying here that we, because we're now made alive, he's speaking to Christians here, and we have been made alive by the Spirit. We are now debtors to the life of the Spirit. God is in us. We now have a new master, and we are no longer debtors or obligated to live according to the flesh. So to live according to the flesh means to still be dominated by sin and to be under its dominion. That's what it means to live according to the flesh, where sin is still your master. Sin still dominates you. It means that, that a person who is living according to the flesh looks more like this world than they do Christ. Now here's the, here's the thing. Here's the thing that we need to see is that 
There are many people who think and assume that they are right with God, that they may consider themselves Christians, but they are still living according to the flesh. Self-deception, easy believism, is, is, a, is a very real possibility in in the life of the church. And, and Paul is saying that we can no longer live according to the flesh. Just a question, friends. Just if we could peel back the curtain and look at your life, of course, no Christian is perfect. We, we've talked a lot about sanctification, and we'll talk about that in the coming weeks, certainly, and certainly today. But is your life characterized by obedience to God or by obedience to, to the flesh? Which characterizes our lives? And that's what Paul is aiming at here. Which leads us to the, to the next question I want to ask before we settle down on what it means to put to death the deeds of the body. Look at the beginning of verse 13. Paul says, and remember now he's speaking to Christians here, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. So he's saying that if you continue to live in this way, Remember, his audience is Roman Christians, and he's warning them, he's exhorting them, he's chastening them, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. So that brings up this question, is Paul saying, is he asking, is he implying that a Christian can lose their salvation? Well, um, I think, I hope you know the answer to that by now if you've been around Crosspoint for a while. I think you know what my answer would be. I, I think that the answer is no. A true born-again believer cannot lose their salvation. And I ground that in Scripture because I don't think our salvation is ours to lose. We, we can just, even in this chapter, we can go to, the, to, to, verses, to verses 29 and 30. Look at Romans 8, verses 29 and 30, which we'll get to in a few weeks, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We'll talk a lot about in the coming weeks about what that means, but, but suffice it to say at this point that God is the author of salvation. He's the one who's doing the foreknowing. He's the one who's doing the predetermining. And then in verse 30, there's this beautiful there's this beautiful sequence that theologians have called the golden, unbreakable chain of salvation. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, this is the key phrase here, he also glorified, past tense. So it's settled in God's mind. Even though we are in time not yet glorified, that's awaiting our future consummation. Remember we talked about the resurrection. We just sang about the resurrection. That in a sense we are becoming who we already are. And there's an unbreakable chain here where God is speaking about our final destination through Paul in Romans 8 in the past tense. So just from, just from this chapter alone, I would conclude that a Christian cannot lose their salvation. And then we can look at other parts of the Bible. We can look at 1 Peter chapter 1, which we won't take the time to read, but we did last week where it says that our salvation is imperishable. It is unfading. It is kept in heaven for you, guarded by faith that God gives us. 
And, and we can look at John chapter 6 where Jesus says that a person that he draws to himself, he will by no means cast out. And we can look at John chapter 10 a little bit later in the gospel of John where Jesus says that the true sheep hear my voice and nothing can snatch them out of my hand. So, so I, I, I want to answer that question emphatically that no, I don't think a true Christian can lose their salvation. I think there can be people who appear to be Christians for maybe a long period of time in their lives, but they, and they fall away, and it might seem like they lost something, but I would say that they never truly were born again. Okay, and we all, we all, we all I think most of us, I mean, you don't have to agree with that to be a Christian. I think you should. I think it's, I think it's God glorifying. That gets a lot of amens, and it should. We should, we should amen that. But Paul's point here is that you can't just amen that and have that as a theological category and it actually not produce in you any sort of warning or expectation, exhortation to live for God. Do you, do you see, that's, that, let me put it to you this way. I think, let me, all right, I'm going to bend our minds here a little bit. I believe that the Bible teaches that salvation is unconditional. That the grace that God saves us with is unconditional. Meaning that there's no conditions in the sinner that they need to meet prior to God saving them. Do you, do you understand that truth? That's really, really important. There's nothing that's required of us before God saves us because what can a dead man do? What conditions can he bring to the table to save himself? None. He's dead. Even the faith that we must have to be saved is a consequence of the new birth. It's not the cause of the new birth. Okay? Everybody, amen. But, but, Paul says, and I believe in unconditional grace. But I believe that the unconditional grace of God will be verified by the conditional sanctification that must exist in a person. <laughs> in my life, I, I believe I'm a Christian. And you're happy to know that as a member of this church. Oh, good. I learned today that my pastor thinks he's a Christian. <laughs> Check that box off. <laughs> Find a church where the pastor's actually born again. Uh, well, I could say lots at this point, but. But I, I don't think I can just say I'm born again and just continue. I, I, think, I think I have to feel the weight. I think that if I. <laughs> I think that if I, I don't think I can lose my salvation, but if I live according to the flesh, I will die. And by death, I don't mean physical death. I don't think that's what Paul is saying there. It means that you will live in eternity separated from God. And we do not understand the Bible and the gospel and the Christian life if we cannot, with our theological category of the unconditional grace of God, Combine that with the conditional exhortation that if this is true in you, then this must be true as well. That, that's the point here. 
friends. Let me, let me show it to you this way. Look, look, look at, let me look at what Jude, the, 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 the last short little one chapter letter at the end of the Bible, right before Revelation, this is what Jude says. This is helpful for me to, to think in these terms. Jude says in verse 17, Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Look at verse 21 again. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So let's balance Jude, verse 21, with what we just referred to in 1 Peter, where it says that our salvation is kept in heaven for us. So who's doing the keeping? Is it God or are we doing the keeping because we are, according to verse 21, keeping ourselves in the love of God? So what's the explanation of that? It's that God, and we, a couple years ago, we went to the Together for the Gospel Conference and all the pastors are going again here in April. And I remember sitting with Paul Fincher and John Piper was preaching this message, and he said this, and he was preaching on this text, and it hit Paul and I both, and Paul and I still talk about that moment in this verse, and this is what Piper said about verse 21. He says that the way that God preserves us is that he enables us to do self-preserving things. In other words, fighting sin is a necessary condition of the unconditional grace of God. Do you see that? We cannot say that we are his if there's nothing in our lives that commends his ownership. And here's my fear. As our church gets larger and as it's harder to to know people and, and as the culture gets more wicked is that it can just be very easy in our culture and in our setting to be, to be a Christian whose life is still lived according to the flesh, which means that you're actually not a Christian. Do you, do you see that? Not because you lost your salvation, but because you were deceived in thinking that you were a Christian in the first place. Part of the way that God preserves us is by exhorting us to do self-preserving things. We must we must heed the exhortation. If we don't, we will die. An analogy I've used time and time again is imagine if, imagine if you lived on a busy street and the father of the house had small boys that were out in the front yard playing ball in the front yard. And the dad is sitting on the porch and he says to the boys, do not get close to that road. Don't kick the ball out into the street. Don't run out in the street. Because if you run out into the street, there will be a truck 
barreling down that road and it's coming fast and if you run out into the street, you will die. Now, he's a good father and he is going to ensure that he's going he's gonna to keep watch over his children and if his kids, because of their ignorance and knuckleheadedness, get close to the edge, he's going to jump up off the porch and he is going to snatch them by the scruff of their neck or he's going to yell at them to get their attention to bring them back. But one of the ways, one of the means by which he guarantees their safety is the exhortation that he gives them that they must heed. And so when we read verse 13, Christians must heed. This is the way God preserves us by telling us that if we live this way, we will die. And I think if I could lose my salvation, I would lose it every day. But God heeds us, he warns us, and he preserves us through verses like verse 13 that says, if you, if you do this, you will die. And I can't get outside of that and say, oh, well, God, well, thank you for that exhortation, but don't you know I'm a, I'm a, I am a reformed pastor. I believe in the perseverance of the saints. So, the, so thank you, God, for that exhortation, but that applies to somebody else. While I just go ahead and just kind of live a life according to the flesh, I will find myself deceived on that day. That's, that's the warning here, which leads us to this final question. How do we put to death the deeds of the body? Verse 13, the second half. So let me read verse 13 again. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So Paul has gone from contrasting life in the flesh and life in the Spirit in the verses prior to this to now exhorting us, saying, you must you must put to death. The old English word for putting to death is to mortify. A, a historic book in the Christian faith written in the 1600s that is still being printed today by John Owen is a classic little book called The Mortification of Sin. It's the putting to death. And what's interesting here in that phrase, put to death, Really, it's, it's a present active tense, so it's not a one-time action. It's really better translated, I think, if by the Spirit you keep putting to death, you continue to put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Spring is here, and you can tell that by the, by the pollen, right? <laughs> Welcome to the South, for those of you that aren't from here, and this is your first spring. I was in India a couple weeks ago, and when I left, it was winter, and then I guess when I was gone, it was really warm, and I came back, and my lawn looked good when I left, and it was still kind of dead, you know, and tight and crisp, and then I came back, and just in the span of a couple days, there's just weeds and pollen everywhere. And I, I know this, I got a weed whacker, and I love, I, I love to mow my lawn. Um, I, I love to weed whack, it's just kind of therapeutic, it's just, you know, there's just something about mowing your lawn as a guy, you know? You just know, that's one thing you know you're going to get right. <laughs> you, know, you just, just, just do it. Man, I mean, I can't mess that up. Nobody's, nobody's just, yeah, man. And at the end of it, you just look at it and it's tight. Looks good. And, and I know I can, I know I can trim some weeds, man, like a boss. But here's what I found, is that weeds, 
When you just clip the top of them off with the weed whacker, they come back the next week. They keep coming back. And what, what Paul is exhorting us to do here is to keep not just cutting off the tops of the weeds of our sin, but to mortify, to pull it up, to, to, to pull them up by the roots and to spray our yard with the, with the, the grace of the gospel that prevents further growth. So some thoughts about how we put to death the deeds of the body. What does Paul say there? First, he says that we are to do this by the Spirit. So this is not merely an individual effort. Do you see this? Do you see this combination here? We just looked at earlier about just even this doctrine of perseverance, how God causes us to stay Christians by enabling us to do things that will keep ourselves in the love of God. He exhorts us, and that's the picture here too. Paul says that if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So here's the good news of the Christian life. It's not just that we have to agree with this message and we're made new, we're saved, we sort of signed the fire insurance policy and now we're Christians and now we're just kind of sent along our way to try and live this life. No, what did we talk about last week? That the Spirit of God indwells us, makes us alive, gives us a new heart and empowers us to obey God. So where obedience to God and fighting sin was impossible now it's possible why because the spirit of god dwells in us friends we have to see this point this is what it means to be a christian that the creator of the universe the one who spoke everything into existence out of nothing has taken up residence in your soul and because of that guarantee, we are now enabled, we're, we're vivified is the old word. We are enlivened by the life-giving, never-leaving, always-abiding, guaranteeing grace of the presence of God in us that we can do this. There's this combination that is in the life of a believer. It's the Spirit of God working in us, so it's us through the Spirit enabled, enlivened to obey him. That's, that's the truth of Philippians chapter two, isn't it? You should, you should hopefully know this verse. Philippians two, verse, verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not, as, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out, there's the imperative, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So do you see, do you see that combination that we do this by the Spirit. And I think that's, that's what Paul means a couple verses earlier in Romans, where in Romans verse five and six, he says, for those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So how do we live by the Spirit? What does that mean? It's not just some sort of ambiguous sort of untangible thing. It means that we dwell on, we think about, we spend time contemplating what pleases God in our lives. That's what it means to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. And how do you set your mind on the things of the Spirit? Well, that leads me to the second thought about what it means to put to death the deeds of the body. We, we saturate our lives with, with the Bible. 
Now, this, this week as I was preparing for this and thinking about just being helpful to you, I, I, I thought about the tendency sometimes in my own life and in sermons I've heard where uh, it can kind of denigrate into um, a kind of like, you know, Dennis the Minister, the, his next door neighbor, Mr. Wilson, and just this grumpy old man. And sometimes imperatives like this, they come across kind of like, kind of just kind of like, get off my lawn, kid. And I don't mean that in this tone at all, but, but like, we need to saturate our lives with the Bible, but the reality is, is that many people, I think many Christians, are anemic in their faith because they have a very distant relationship with their Bible. We don't read our Bibles, by and large, in our culture today. Listen to what, listen to what the psalmist says about the power of the Word to help us fight sin. I, I can... <laughs> I can remember this verse, I think, saving my life at very critical times. When I was a, when I was a cadet at the United States Military Academy as a new Christian racked with the tug of the flesh, I can remember this helping me when I was a young lieutenant at Fort Benning. And I, I can think of even recent times where this verse has been a kind of lifeline to me. I, I pray that this might just emblazon itself on somebody's heart. Listen to what the psalmist says. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And by that, I don't just mean cherry-picking cherry a verse when we're in some moment of temptation. You, you've got you've to know the Bible. You've got to read it. And you, you have to... Look, I don't, I don't want this to be just a grumpy, come on, read your Bibles, folks. But, but friends, we, we are people that know how to take in information, don't we? We do. I mean, we got phones that have us... I mean, you know, I thought about this the other day. I, I, I will sit and watch a, a game, and I have my phone with me all the time because I Wikipedia some guy that, you know, is a player on the team, and I want to know, like, where he went to college or whatever and how many touchdowns he threw as a sophomore in high school. We are people that know how to take in information. And maybe the information age has actually kind of muted the actual true information that really means anything, which is the Bible, and so my, right now, maybe there's somebody in this room that is hanging on by a thread in their obedience to God, and the decisive thing in your life is if you right now would resolve in your life to read your Bible, to give yourself to understanding God's word, here are a few suggestions on how to begin to do that. Just right now, resolve in your mind, make yourself a note, put it in your phone if that's the way you need to remember it. Read through the gospel. Start with Mark maybe is a good place to start. It's a short gospel. It's a, it's a very clear articulation of Jesus' life and ministry. Read long portions of scripture without feeling like you have to stop and understand all of it. 
Redeem the time in your car and listen to the Bible read while you're in your car and do Bible reading in groups. At a minimum, say to a friend that's in this room that you know is a believer or somebody that is a Christian friend, can we get together once a week and let's meet for coffee and let's just read the book of Colossians out loud together. Let's just read Philippians. Let's just read a chapter in Romans together. Friends, that little bit will begin to whet your appetite. And for some people in this room, that alone would be transformative. One chapter a week would be far better than one chapter every two years. And that's where some people are. And the reason that you're getting destroyed and the reason why that your life is being tossed to and fro and the reason why you are racked with despair is because you are not fastened to the word of God. So don't get off my lawn. Come, come to God's lawn and feed on the grass that he has richly provided for his sheep, Right? Another thought, sever, sever the roots of sin. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, verse 7 and 9. Jesus says, woe, Matthew 18, verse 7, woe to the world for temptations to sin. Man, in the world full of temptations, and I'm not acting like we have it difficult, more difficult than other generations, but... Man, you don't even have to leave your bed for you to be opened up to a whole universe of garbage. That's the world we live in. And so if we think that we can just kind of clip along with a sort of laissez-faire, lazy Christian existence, we will get destroyed. Jesus says, To Peter, at the end of the Gospels in in Luke, he says, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, Matthew 18, verse 7. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Listen to verse 8. This is Jesus' conclusion on how we should handle temptation and sin. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Jesus is not talking about a less than optimal life here. He's talking about the differences between the only two eternal realities that every person will reside in. Life with him forever or eternal separation from him forever where he describes in Mark 9 is a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's how serious Jesus is taking handling the deeds of the body, sin here, and he's saying, make war. And I think he's speaking metaphorically, but that shouldn't lessen the blunt of what he's saying. He's saying, do whatever it takes to fight this thing. There are some of you right now that you need to leave this building and you need to take that smartphone and you need to, don't throw it because you might hit somebody. You need to take a hammer and 
smash that thing. There's some of you that have computers and iPads and you need to take it and run over it and throw it into the Chattahoochee. It's polluted anyway. It won't matter. <laughs> there are some of you that, that you have numbers memorized in your head and when it shows up on your screen, you need to block it. You need to give it to a trusted friend and say, help me because I can't help myself. And what hangs in the balance is heaven or hell. For me, for you. God, help us with this. In his book, Mortification of Sin, John Owen, the Puritan preacher in the 1600s, said something, I read it again this week, and it, it hit me. And he said that what we do oftentimes is we, for a period of time when we're going through kind of intense guilt or conviction, we'll knock off the top, we'll knock off, we'll deal with just the consequence of the sin and we'll, we'll kind of minimize it. And the devil, because he is a skillful warrior, will withdraw for a time to make us think that we have dealt with it but we haven't truly dealt with it. We haven't truly pulled up the root. We haven't brought it out into the light. We haven't, we haven't rearranged our life. We haven't brought in accountability. We haven't truly repented of it. We haven't done things. And so we, we've made ourselves feel better because maybe we, we just sort of in a cursory sort of way dealt with it. The devil backs off for a time to lull us to sleep, to make us think that it's okay only to come back around later when we are not as aware and knock us off our horse. How many of you have been in a situation where you find yourself in sin and you fear the revealing of that sin and in some secret place you cry out to God, God, if you will just, if, if you will just get me out of it this time, I will never go back. And here's the thing, oftentimes, it's not God that answers that prayer, it's the devil who answers that prayer, and he makes you think that that thing goes away, only to come back and pound you with it when you're unsuspecting. And what Jesus is saying here is, don't sweep that thing under the rug, cut it off. Cut it off. Cut it off, Brad. Cut it off. Cut it off, dear one. Cut it off. Cut it off. Heaven and hell hangs in the balance. Another thought, this goes with this resist being discipled by the world. This goes with saturating your life with the Bible and you realize, don't you, I hope that we live in a, we do not live in a neutral place. First Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 10 says that the devil prowls about like a lion seeking whom he may devour. Um, 
Friends, do you realize, and this is not, I'm not talking political stuff here, like, you know, hashtag fake news, or, you know, I'm not saying that the Russians are somehow trying to, you know, manipulate our Facebook feed to cause us to, but, but, but I think there's actually something much more ominous than the Russians trying to alter elections. I think there's, I think there's a, an adversary, our devil, who prowls about like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so while the Russians may be trying to get us to vote for this person or that person, there is a devil behind your newsfeed that is intending to get you to see things that will cause you to drift away from God. That's far more important than an American presidential race. And we're all up in arms because Putin's doing something. Friends, be much more up in arms that the devil wants to sift you as wheat. And he's behind that news feed. He is in that boardroom at that broadcasting company. He's the producer of The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. He is putting the Game of Thrones in front of you. He's the one that's doing that. He's putting that naked body in front. That's who's doing it. And friends, when we see that, we are discipled by it. And now we have a whole generation of confessing Christians who are okay with all sorts of extramarital activity and are okay with lifestyles that are contrary to God. Friends, because we've been discipled by the world. Because there's a wicked one behind our programming and our news feeds and our phones that is discipling us. And what hangs in the balance, friends, is our very souls. <laughs> I got a couple more thoughts, but that's enough. Let's, let's pray. Lord's, Lord, help us to, to see this truth. I, I need to see the I need to see this afresh in my own life. I need to sever the root of my remaining residual sin. And so do my brothers and sisters. And what hangs in the balance, Lord is eternity. And what awaits us is true joy. If we live according to the flesh, we will die. But if by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the flesh, we will live. Lord, we want to live by the power of the gospel, your son who canceled sin and took away its penalty and robbed it of its power. And by your spirit who helps us, helps us fight against its remaining presence, Lord, help us by the spirit fight with all of our might because our lives depend on it. Help us to fight sin and help us to help one another fight sin. 
may this be a place where it is okay to struggle. May this be such a grace-filled zone that it is okay to deal with the root of our sin, but it, would it also be a place, Lord, where we are not okay if we stay there? We are people who fight, fight together, fight together, who make war against our sin. And if we do so, we will live. I pray these things, I plead with you for these things, for my own soul and for the soul of these people who I love very much. In Jesus' name.